way home from Wollongong University. Now, every Wednesday when I went to the old guy there uh, to buy the flowers, he would always say, without fail, what did you do this time? Nobody said that to me in the last 10 years of buying flowers. Maybe I haven't bought the flowers. But what is it about flowers and buying flowers? There's this sense in which you are making up for some kind of wrong. Um, If your spouse or somebody that you love is upset or angry for good reason... What are flowers supposed to do? Like, is it supposed to be a distraction? Ha! You forgot about it, didn't you? Because I've surprised you with the flowers and you've forgotten now what I did until you go into the bathroom and see the toilet seat up again. Uh, or whatever else it might be. Uh, but, but it might be something that is, that is seriously wrong, that, that has created sadness and a right feeling of being upset... It is, is, is flowers supposed to say, well, that thing was not so bad, you can replace it with a $4.99 bunch of flowers from Super Barn on a Sunday morning? Maybe. Or, or, or is it that as you go, well, here's the stupid things that I do in the relationship and I can start putting some flowers on this side of the relationship to kind of balance up a little bit and the flowers do that kind of thing. What do flowers do so that they might make a relationship right. Well, I'm going to say a whole bunch of other things this morning, but remember this, it is always a good thing to buy flowers for somebody that you love. I'm not saying don't buy flowers. Today we're going to talk about propitiation. And propitiation is, well, it is a relationship word. It's a difficult word to understand, But to start us understanding propitiation, propitiation is this. What? Propitiation says God's anger is turned away. God's holy and right anger at our sin is turned aside from us to Jesus. Now, if somebody you bought flowers for got them and started ripping them apart, cutting into them, destroying them, leaving a mess on the floor, and then they go, ha, now I feel better... Whoa, what? Now, this is how I want you to feel about propitiation. Whoa, what? Hang on, we've got a mess on the floor now. We've got a destroyed $4.99 bunch of flowers. Propitiation... There's a bit of it that is uncomfortable for us to get our heads around. There's a bit of it that we want to object to. On the list of big words that end in shun, this one feels a bit negative for us. And 
And that's okay. It's okay to be feeling like that. That is actually a good thing. Because understanding that, feeling that, this will help us on the path to a right understanding of why propitiation then is necessary, possible and essential. And it's one of the big words that end in shun that we want to know and hold on to. Why is propitiation necessary? Propitiation is necessary because God's anger is real. Now let me get this out of the road uh, to start with. God has not got an anger management issue. Uh, as, as, as if to say, hey, hey, hey God, let's, let's sit down, let's go and talk about this, let's go and get some uh, counselling on this. God has not got an issue and a problem handling his anger. When we talk about God's anger, we're talking about God's right response to sin. It's a holy anger. The Bible uses the word wrath. Now, as soon as I say the word wrath, we might be having negative images of hell and brimstone and fiery rage. But talking about God, God's wrath, yes, sure, it is fierce, yet it's a measured and just response to the offence that our sin is to His perfect goodness. The whole of humanity has rejected God and His rule. If you are here last week, we are thinking about that image of the still, calm pond being God's perfect world and we throw the rocks of our rejection of God into the pool to stir it up. The whole of humanity has done that. We read this verse just a moment ago in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they, the world, everyone has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and instead of worshipping God, our Creator, have worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. We are all caught up in this. Romans chapter 1, 2 and 3, the great sweep of that is to help us to see that everyone who has ever lived, everyone that who ever will live is caught up in this kind of objection to God, rejection of God. And what we see in this sweep of Romans 1, 2 and 3, that God's right response, God's just response is His wrath. So we read there in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then down in chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. As we read the book of Romans, we see that God's anger is real, and because God's anger is real, it's necessary that God do something with it. Not, not just sweep it under the carpet... Not to kind of make it go away by saying, well, the sin, the offence just doesn't really matter. 
What God does with His holy anger, His righteous wrath, God's just response to sin, He turns it aside from us to Jesus. Propitiation is necessary because God's anger is real. Now, this propitiation is also possible because of Jesus' sin-bearing death. What we're talking about here this morning is not a mere intellectual construct to deal with a philosophical problem. Think about the cross. The cross in history, at a real place, at a real point in time, a real historical person and being, God in the flesh was taken and nailed to the cross, bearing the sin of the world. This is not a philosophical problem, this is not a mere intellectual construct, there was real flesh and blood, God the Eternal Son Himself and the man Jesus willingly laid down His life physically and spiritually to absorb the wrath of God. Men and women were there and saw it. Amongst Jesus' disciples, amongst Jesus' family, amongst uh, Romans, amongst Jews, people who liked Him, people who were interested in Him, people who hated Him, people who loved Him, historians then and through to today, there was a real historical person, flesh and blood, who dealt with it. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, where we kind of come to the end of these first three chapters of Romans, we read there, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. This is the first place in the New Testament where we come across the word propitiation. It's in old versions of the Bible, newer versions of the Bible we don't find the word propitiation. Yeah, it's a, you've got it in your Bible, Derek? I've got it in my Bible, but it's in the handwriting um, that I've kind of written in there. Um, ESV, so that's a newer version of the Bible, but it's a word that we don't use every day. Um, anyone use the word propitiation this week? Probably not even in Scrabble or an obscure crossword puzzle. Um, but this helpful uh, term, atoning sacrifice, has been used here. Atoning sacrifice is a word that has lots of Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, God gave His Old Testament people, the Israelites, a sacrificial system uh, so that they could understand sin and the consequences of sin and the punishment of sin and death. You see, the one who carries sin can't stand under God's wrath and survive. So in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, uh, men and women had to bring an animal or a bird and the bird animal would die in their place. The sin that they carried would be put onto the animal or the bird and it would die, it would bear God's wrath. Now is is the question, does God uh, love death? Does God just love seeing death Well, no, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, God wanted His people 
to see clearly the consequences of sin and to prepare the way for Jesus, who would be the ultimate sin-bearer. And because Jesus, sin-bearing death is real, He's not just an animal or a bird that, that, that uh, symbolically stands in the place of somebody else to uh, bear sin, because Jesus uh, 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 bears sin, bears the death, uh, Jesus' sin-bearing death is real, uh, propitiation then is possible. God's anger is dealt with. God's anger is turned aside to Jesus. Now, you should still be feeling uncomfortable with this. Uh, at this point, suggesting that Jesus died a sin-bearing death, many, many people make reasonable and sincere objections to this. There was a Good Friday sermon preached in my hometown, Grafton, uh, by Gregory Jenks. He's the Dean of the Anglican Cathedral. I used to hang out in the Anglican Cathedral quite a lot. I wasn't an Anglican, uh, but I used to like playing the pipe organ there and would play at weddings and funerals and when they would do their Christmas Messiah, I'd play the trumpet uh, in, in, the, uh, in the orchestra there. But hear what uh, Jenks preached to his congregation on Good Friday this year to try and help them to see that there is a real objection to Jesus' sin-bearing death. See what you think of this. He says, Most of what people will be told about the cross today on Good Friday in churches around the world is nonsense at best and truly bad theology at worst. The idea that my sins, or yours, or both yours and mine together, are what caused Jesus to die, is nonsense. This is an idea that is especially common in Christian hymns, it is nonsense. We know what caused Jesus to be crucified, and it was not your sins, or my sins, or the sins of anyone else we know. All such twisted theology does is generate guilt. It makes us feel bad and encourages us to be compliant participants in a church forgiveness racket. It is misdirected. Jesus was a martyr, not a sacrifice. This is a really bad idea and I hope you never again allow a priest or any person to tell you that God approves of violence for the sake of dealing with evil or sin. Gregory Jenks is a, a really intelligent man, an academic, and he has this reasoned and sincere objection to the idea that Jesus' death is a sin-bearing death. Now he says that it's violent. And yes, I agree with him. Crucifixion is horribly violent and bloody. Evil hands and hearts were at work to kill, the, to kill Jesus. But at the same time, God the Father is working out His good plans of salvation. You see, because God the Son willingly takes on sin 
of the world and absorbs God's wrath. Now, there might be some difficulties here for us in our minds, working out uh, the relationship of the three persons within the being of God, but the Bible is clear, God's anger is real, Jesus' sin-bearing death is real, and therefore, propitiation is necessary and possible. Now, I'd like you to turn over, please, to the New Testament book of 1 John. This is the only other place in the New Testament where propitiation is mentioned. Once in Romans, twice in 1 John. And here we see that propitiation is essential because our relationship with God is real. I know several of our small groups have been reading through 1 John. And you should be familiar now, the purpose of 1 John is to assure believers that they can have a relationship with God, that a relationship with God is real, that they belong to Him, that we have eternal life with Jesus. Now look with me please in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. Here it talks about how sin is dealt with in this relationship with God and how we can be assured that we have relationship with God. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, because we all have sinned, and his word has no place in our lives. Chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, and you will, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John recognises for us here is that presence of sin is real, but at the same time, our relationship with God is real. How is this possible? How can we have a fearless and confident existence in the presence of a holy God while we continue to sin because of propitiation. It's essential that God's wrath be turned aside from us to Jesus. A propitiation, I said, pops up one more time in 1 John over in chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verse 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. 
dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It can seem like propitiation is out of place in these verses. This is, this is one of the great chapters in the Bible about love, about God's love for us and us loving one another. We see here that propitiation is not a cold, hard theological truth. It's not the action of a tyrannical deity with an anger management issue. It's not disturbingly violent abuse against the divine son. It is here in the midst of a warm, rich, beautiful, ultimate example of love. This is love. That God, in the person of His Son, He propitiated His anger, His his right response at our sin. He turned it away from us and onto Himself in Jesus. This is love. And this is propitiation that is necessary, possible and essential for us to be in relationship with God. It is necessary because God's anger is real. It's possible because Jesus' sin-bearing death is real. And it's essential because our relationship with God is real. I'm going to conclude this morning, before I pray, with a poem, actually a sonnet. I don't think I've ever recited a poem in a sermon before, and certainly not a sonnet. I've had to learn what a sonnet is. This sonnet takes us from propitiation to justification. It's a wonderful poem and if you like poetry, I hope uh, you'll appreciate it uh, if my reciting of it does it justice. But it's appropriate, I think, to finish with something as beautiful as poetry. Because if there's any chance that propitiation seems cold and intellectual and analytical for us, then let's match it with the warm colour of poetry that reflects the warm love of God that we see for us in 1 John 4. I've got the words printed for you in uh, the sermon outline there, just in case my reciting of it doesn't do justice, and so that you can take them away and continue to reflect on them for yourself, because I hope this draws us further into the wonder of another big word that ends in shun, propitiation. This is a sonnet that's composed as a reflection on Romans chapter 3 by Don Carson. Dilemma wretched, how shall holiness of brilliant light, unshaded, tolerate, rebellion's fettered slime and not abate. In its own glory compromised at best, dilemma wretched, how can truth attest? That God is love and not be shamed by hate and wills enslaved and bitter death the freight of curse deserved the human rebel's mess. The cross, 
the cross, the sacred meeting place, where knowing neither compromise nor loss, God's love and holiness in shattering grace, the great dilemma slays the cross, the cross. The holy, loving God whose dear Son dies, by this is just and one who justifies.